Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Are you an on the time person or are you a late person? Some of that's indicated by those of you, whether you walked in after the first song or after the fourth or third song this morning. Some of you, it was whether you walked in in time for a coffee this morning or whether you were, whether you're an alarm, like stickler right onto the alarm or, or whatever. For me, I, um, I've always been a stickler for being on time. I hate being late. Hate it. Really hate it. And it took me a little while to think back as to why it was that I hate being late so much. And we sort of had this moment, this encounter, Eloise and I, um, as you know, you do as married couples, and um, we had an, I'll call it an encounter, disagreement, whatever. We had a moment uh, where we were headed away out to something. I don't even remember what it was, but um, I was itching with frustration because my expectations of us leaving at a certain time to get there by a certain time, I don't even remember what the event was, we were running late. And the reason we were running late was because Eloise was hanging out the washing. And I'd chosen to help her, so you can't blame me for, you know, I wasn't just standing there waiting for her to finish. No, I at least had the, had the um, emotional awareness to help her. But it, it, it helped me realize something about why it is that I hate being late so much. I hate being late because growing up for me, one of my, my, uh, my stepdad was a shocker for late, like late to everything. And I, had, and I realized that there was a trigger for me because I have this distinct memory in my past of needing to get to a birthday party. And the birthday party started at two o'clock, I think. And at five past two, I've got this vivid memory of my stepdad walking out to the line with a load of washing. It's five past two, it takes 15 minutes to get to the party. And he's out, headed out to the line with a load of washing. Because he's just got one more thing to get done. One more load of washing. One more thing to achieve. And it got me realized that I've got this trigger in my life around being late. And it's connected to my stepdad's propensity to just do one more thing before we got going to where we needed to go. And it got me analyzing sort of, because I'm not on the time all the time, obviously. We're all late for certain reasons, and, and we're all late sometimes. But it did get me looking at my own life and reflecting on the moments that I'd been late. And as I look back on them, every single time that I have been late to, that I can remember, it was because I was trying to achieve something. And all I needed to do was just do one more thing before we left. And for those of you that might find yourselves as habitually late people, you might recognize how many times you've done that one more thing. Just got to achieve that one more thing before I get out the door. I just got to do that one more thing before. And before you know it, the time has ebbed away and you're late again. And I think whether you consider yourself an on-time person or a late person, 
I think we all suffer from this in different ways. I call it the one more syndrome. So whether it's related to time or whether it's related to something like chocolate, which we've already talked about during the series, my one more propensity around chocolate and the excuses we give ourselves for that. Or, but there's always a one more. No matter your experience, there's always a one more something in your life. It might be one more conversation before you leave church and get to the car and your spouse has been at the car for 20 minutes. It might be one more sleeve of biscuits. It might be one more pair of shoes. It might be one more anything. I, I don't know, what, what, is, what could that be for you? For me, as a, as a preacher, it might be one more sermon point before I sit down. It might be one more Netflix show, one more Instagram reel, right? One, just one more email before I head home from the office. One more snooze on the alarm clock before I get out of bed when it's five degrees. That one feels particularly relevant. It might be one more chapter of a book before I go to sleep. For all of us, there is a one more something that presses our buttons. For many of us, for most of us, there's more than one. One more thing that we are, I guess, kind of, we, we stumble over in different ways. And the thing that I was thinking about when it comes to this whole one more mentality is that one more seems like a relatively innocent thing when you do it once or twice, isn't it? Is it like if you've got to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and you press the, uh, the snooze button at 7 o'clock and it takes you to 7.05, it's not really that big a deal, is it? You just spend a little bit less time um, reading the paper or scrolling your phone on Facebook or whatever before you get in the car and go to work. Spend two minutes less in the shower, you know, like it's one, one more, you know, snooze button. It's not that big a deal. One more sleeve of biscuits in the grand scheme of things is not really that big a deal. But the thing about the one more thing is, one more takes time. One more takes resources, whether it's time, whether it's, whether it's money, whether it's whatever. One more pair of shoes. That idea of a one more mentality takes some resources. And those resources have to come from somewhere, don't they? So if I'm going to choose to be at the office and send one more email before I head home to be with my family... That idea of one more takes some resources. Where, does it, where do those resources come from? They come from the time that I'm meant to spend with my family, yes? And now it's not a big deal one way or the other. You know, like it's, my marriage is not going to dissolve over me being five minutes later than I had planned to be home after work of a given day. But my decision to do one, send one more email ends up robbing some time from the time that I had otherwise planned to spend with my family. And we can only do these one more things for so long before we end up hitting the boundary of whatever restriction or whatever rule or whatever thing we decided. So you can only do one more thing before you realize you're late. You only do one more thing before you realize that your blood sugar level's too high and you shouldn't have had any more biscuits. You only do one more chapter until you realize that it's 11 o'clock and you've got to get up early in the morning. Most of the time, our one more doesn't break the rules that we have set around us. But the idea of one more takes us a whole lot closer. What, it, what a one more does is it eats our margin and gets us closer to the boundaries, to the rules, to the laws that we have set around us. It often doesn't break the rule, but it steals the margin between us 
and whatever rule or whatever thing it is we're striving for. It takes us to the closest to the line as possible. Probably the best illustration of this would be the speed limit. How many of us, we've talked about this before, how many of us drive around, if let's argue, well, the Gawler Bypass, 50 k's an hour. How many of you have never done more than 50 k's an hour on the Gawler Bypass? You're all giggling awkwardly at me because you know you have. Because as far as most of us would be concerned, 50 k's an hour along there is a joke. But that's the rules and that's what's happened. But how many of us would say that we have stuck with the 50 k's an hour? No, of course we haven't. We all sort of trickle over it a little bit from time to time. Or we stick on it. And then when we lose lose attention or when we get distracted by something, we go over it. You go down a hill. You go over it. Suddenly you're breaking the law. And we find ourselves that this line exists everywhere. In all the different things that we have happening in our life. And sometimes that line, I'll give you four illustrations of it. The line could be legal or illegal, in this case of the speed or something like that. Could be responsible or irresponsible. Something you would consider to be a responsible choice, to then it graduates to, at some point, irresponsible behavior, doesn't it? And then we move to moral and immoral. Some things you would consider to be moral, right, just behavior. And then there's some things you would consider are immoral. At some point, there's a line there, isn't there? Where you step over it and you realize, hang on a sec, that was an immoral choice. And the last, perhaps, is ethical or unethical. At what point does your ethical behavior become unethical? There's a line there somewhere. There is. We've all got one. And the thing, where I want to take us with the remainder of our time today, is this idea of our behavior that takes us as close to the line as possible. There's just one more mindset that we have. Gives us this other sort of binary mindset. This idea that if it's not, if it's not wrong, it must be right. So often the times when we, when we uh, ask ourselves questions to help us decide what it is we're going to do with our life, most of the time we filter our, our world and our decision making through the question of, is it wrong? Because if it's not wrong, then it must be right. If it's not unethical, it must be ethical. If it's not illegal, it must be legal. If it's, if it's not If it's not over the line, it must be fine. And if we're honest, most of us live that way most of the time. If it's not going to immediately make me late, then it's not that big a deal. If it's not going to immediately make me fat, then eating it is not that big a deal. If you're not over the line, then most likely you're fine. The question I remember, I was at a... um, a youth camp on a panel giving advice to teenagers a number of years ago. What a thrill that is, by the way. But fortunately, given that I wasn't the parents of any of those young people, they actually listened to me, which was a bonus, because most young people, we don't listen to our parents, everyone knows that. Um, but a bunch of different questions came up on this panel, and they're throwing all the big ones at us. You know, is it a seven-day creation? You know, what's, what do we do with evolution? And there's some great answers to those things. But the one that absolutely stumped everyone on the panel, until I sort of sat and thought about it, was how far is too far sexually? Ever had a young person ask you that question? 
Ever wondered it yourself? How far can I muck about with my girlfriend, boyfriend, sexual partner before it's considered too far on the spectrum of sexual ethics? Have you ever wondered it? Has a young person ever asked you that question? Do you have an answer? It's an interesting one to think about because the question or the idea, the assumption perhaps, that is beneath that question is how close can I get to the line before I go over it? How close can I get to sinning before it actually counts as sin? Is there a line and how close can I get to it? Is there a speed limit and how close can I get to it before I get in trouble? And the thing about this idea for us is that it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. Because most of the time, when we get ourselves to the line, we don't ever stand on it. We trip over it. And we find ourselves on the wrong side of whatever line we had chosen to make. And we wonder how we got here. What do we do? How do we get here? We get ourselves over the line with one more decision, one at a time. With just one more, just one more, just one more. And every time we decide to do just one more, it eats away at the margin between us and whatever lines of behavior we have chosen to have in our life. We become, by doing these one more choices, we flirt with addiction. And then before we look around, we realize we're addicted to something. And we don't know how it happened, what happened with just one more. Most of you would know that last year, last year I suffered from burnout. And if you've ever suffered from burnout, burnout is one of those moments where you realize that you just do not have capacity to do anything. You don't have the energy you don't have enthusiasm, you don't have any joy left in your life. And you look around and you wonder, how on earth did I get here? How did I get here? And when I reflected with my psychologist about the idea of of burnout and looking around and realizing I didn't want to be a pastor anymore and I didn't enjoy meeting with people anymore and I didn't enjoy time with my family anymore. And I, I asked her, how the hell did I get here? And she said, you got here one decision at a time. And I liken it to a treadmill, that you stand there and you're walking on this treadmill and you're doing sort of 5Ks an hour or something like that. And then you just press the up arrow just once. And then suddenly you're doing 5.1Ks an hour. And then you're doing 5.2Ks an hour. And if you never press that down button, all you just do is you press that up button just once more, just one more, just one more. And before I knew it, I was running faster than I could possibly carry myself, and I crashed off the treadmill. Have you ever seen a video of someone fall off a treadmill? It's hilarious to watch, but it's not much fun. So friends, that's the reality that each of us exist with around this idea of just one more. So where are we going with all of this? Well, we are in this series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And it's a a series that ultimately is helping us ask ourselves good questions that give us the wisdom to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. And I'm convinced that if we ask ourselves these questions, if we answer them honestly, 
and act accordingly, I believe. And based on the conversation I'm having with people so far, there's people that are asking themselves these questions and acting accordingly are actually making better decisions. And the motivation for this is not just about our life, it's about those that we love as well, because we know that our impact, our, deci- our de- decisions don't just impact ourselves, they impact people around us, people we know and love and trust. It might even impact the people in future generations. And so the questions that we've gone through so far, I'm just going to su- summarize them super quick. We've looked at the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself, really? Am I being honest with myself, really? Because we'll never get where we want to be if we're not honest about where we are. The second question is a legacy question. What story do I want to tell? Because we write our story one question at a time, one decision at a time. And we look back on our story. What story do we want to tell? Do we want to be the hero or do we want to be the villain? We don't realize that we write that story one decision at a time. And then... Last week, we looked at the conscience question. Andy talked to us about, is there a tension that deserves our attention? Is there a niggle that we're trying to ignore? And if we pause for a moment and pay attention to that niggle just for a moment, we might realize there's something we need to address. And so today, I want to ask us our fourth question, the maturity question. And it's a maturity question because, in many ways, it requires maturity. And when you ask it of yourself and you have the courage to do so, it displays maturity. It displays maturity. And the question is this. What is the wise thing to do? What is the wise thing to do? And the reason I think this question is so helpful, because it helps us navigate the gray areas of our life. Because if we're honest, there's not a great many things in Scripture or that Scripture has to say about Facebook. It doesn't actually mention Instagram. It doesn't mention how many episodes of Netflix I should be watching. It doesn't mention what time I need to go to bed. There's very little in Scripture that teaches us the specifics about living a 21st century life. It doesn't mention my car in there. It doesn't mention a speed limit. It doesn't mention how much time I should be spending with my family. It doesn't mention how many hours a week I should be working. What do we do with all of that gray? One could argue, what do we do with the 50 shades of gray? One of the most common books to appear in op shops globally is the book 50 Shades of Gray. Why? Because everyone wanted to read it and no one wanted it on their shelf. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go home and look it up afterwards. What do we do with the 50 shades of grey in our life? Well, I believe the answer to that is asking this question. I think this is the most important question of the whole series. What is the wise thing to do? And I believe this question combats the just one more syndrome that we suffer. So I want to look briefly at a text from Ephesians. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, he writes about this super practical idea of following Jesus. And if if you read the whole book of Ephesians, Ephesians is basically, this is what Jesus has done for you, and this is what it means for us in the world. 
and this is how you should live it out. And we pick up with the very practical, this is how you should live it out. He says this, says Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, Be very careful, then, how you live. Be careful, then, how you live. Why? Because this is not our, this is not our default setting. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled, be drunk, literally, with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs in the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart in the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul begins this section of the passage by saying, Take care, be aware, because your life is not going to trend this direction, which means you need to pay attention. Pay attention, and he says, to live as one who is wise, not as unwise. It's almost like he's hinting to say, You don't want to be unwise, do you? You don't want to be someone who's foolish. No, of course you don't. So live as though you are wise, making the most of every opportunity. And it's almost like the tone here is because he set it up that Jesus has done so many things for you. Jesus has transformed your life through what he's done for you. And so if you live that out, you get to make the most of every opportunity that is given to you. There's the opportunity here for your best life, a life with the least pain. And he says the, the, the opportunity, the, the way to access that is to live as a wise person, not as an unwise person. And he says, why? Why? Because the days are evil. Wisdom needs to be our grounding. Why? Because the days are evil. Now, you look around and you go, well, I don't think they are. Life's not that bad, is it? Is it evil? But the, th- the contrast we need to see in this moment, and what Paul's trying to get us to understand, is that nothing in this life, short of a few friends that know and love you, maybe some family members who've got your best in store for you, no one is encouraging you to live a life of wisdom. There is no market force that exists that has got your, your wisdom and your best life in mind. The sales representatives that are trying to sell you something don't give a rip about your life and how much you can really afford. The person that made that Instagram feed doesn't care how much time you spend on it for the, at forsaking your friends and your family. The person sending you emails on the other end and you just got to respond to just one more doesn't care about you and doesn't actually, is not actually aware of the pressure you might be under to get home and spend time with your family. The person who made the chocolate bar doesn't care about your waistline. If they did, they wouldn't make it. That's the reality of the world that we live in, is that we exist in a world that is not designed around wisdom. We live in a world that is designed around consumption. There's no one in life helping you get this right. Distraction, temptation, emotional addiction, 
No one's helping us get this right. So Paul's saying, you need to live as wise, not as unwise. He says, because of this, you don't be foolish. You don't want to be a foolish sort of person. Don't be foolish. And instead, he contrasts this foolishness with, but instead understand what the Lord's will is. What's the, what's the opposite of foolishness and being unwise? Well, it's living the way God wants you to live. Instead of being foolish, be wise. And he sets up that contrast quite intentionally. He says, you don't want to be foolish, do you? No, of course we don't. Well, then instead be wise. But what does he contrast foolishness with? At the same time, he contrasts it with God's will. And so we, we understand from the, what Paul's trying to get us to understand is that wisdom is God's will. Simple as that. When we live a life that is wise, it is the best possible life. And it is a life that God has in store for us. So God's will for all our life is that we would live wise. And then he goes on to contrast it with drunkenness. You can be drunk on wine, or you can be drunk on the Spirit. Now we know that getting drunk on, on wine in and itself is not necessarily wrong. There's no law against it. But it makes you make dumb decisions. It makes you lose a day as you recover from a hangover. It's expensive. So you might not cross a line, but there's a bunch of different things there that illustrate how it's negative to your life. But then to be drunk on the Spirit doesn't specifically make a difference in your life. But it will help you make better decisions. You'll, you gain an inheritance in the life to come. You gain a prompting, an, an advocate, someone that can be with you someone that unites you with a community of people across the globe. You gain the gift of the Almighty in your heart. Do you understand the contrast? Do you see the difference? So how do we apply this then? Because it's one thing to say, go and do what's wise. Life is complicated. Do what's wise. Do your best. But I feel like I, want to, I need to help you a little bit more than that. And so I want to expand our question to incorporate three perspectives. Three perspectives, which I think will be most helpful for us getting this right. And the question is, the three perspectives are this. Based in, in, in the light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? Based on my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? Why do we break it up like that? Well, you have experiences in your life, don't you? You are the person that you are based on the experiences that you have in your life, right? Everybody, no one disagrees with that. Of course that's true. Your family of origin, your relationships, the brokenness, the grief, the hurt, the pain, the successes, all of it makes up who you are. Which means you, have a, you are unique. Which means you have a unique perspective. And you also have a unique wiring. It means that some of the things that will tempt someone else don't tempt you. But it also means that you have a higher propensity to be tempted by certain things than someone else. Might be that no, someone can play mobile phone games on their phone and they can just put it down and walk away. But for some reason, you can't. 
you have a unique past experience. You have a unique wiring that makes you slightly more addictive to that. Some people can just have one cube of chocolate and then walk away. Some of us can't. Some of us can spend time with members of the opposite sex without any issue whatsoever. And some of us can't. Do you see what I'm talking about? Each of us is unique in our wiring. And that's where this idea of being wise is not about being right and wrong. It's not saying that you shall never spend time with the opposite sex lest you fall into lust and, and commit adultery. That's a, that's an, it seems like an unreasonable rule. But instead, it's how am I wired? What do I know about myself and my past? And how does that help inform me as to the wise thing for me to do here? Do I know that I have a propensity to eat the whole block of chocolate? So would it, it's not wrong to open it, but is it wise? Based on our past experiences, there's, some, there's a hint there of who we are and the way that we're wired that informs what it is that would be the wise thing to do. But then we've also got our current circumstances based on where I am right now. Not anyone else, based on me. Where I am right now, what is the wise thing to do? Because you have resources right now. You might not actually be able to afford a new car. You might not be able to afford the repayments on a, on a new house. You might have current things that you're aiming for. You might have a relationship right now that, that stops you from doing something like that. Me as a pastor, I have a young family, which means I cannot take meetings in the late in the afternoons. Because if you've ever had kids, you understand that kids are the most painful between about 4 and 6 p.m. And so I owe it to my family, to my wife, to go home and help. So based on where I am right now, it is not wise for me to schedule meetings after 4 p.m. There's no rule anywhere stopping me from doing so. I can do whatever I want. But is it wise for me to do so? Because there's a bunch of pastors out there that don't have kids at home, like I do. And so their freedom is different based on their current circumstances. What is the wise thing to do? But the third thing is, what about future hopes and dreams? You have a picture of where you want to be in your life, don't you? Whether it's two years' time, ten years' time, fifty years' time, however long you've got left on this earth, you don't actually know. There's some predictable things, of course, but... We don't know, but we all have a picture of what our future is going to look like. And that picture might be what our funeral is going to look like, what people are going to say about us. The picture might be the sorts of holidays we want to have, the sort of retirement we've got, the sort of relationship we want to have with our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, the sort of faith we want them to have. All of those things, we have a picture of the future, a preferred future, a vision that we have in mind. And so a helpful question might be, based on our future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? Because it might not be right, and it might not be wrong, but it might directly impact the picture of your future that you have in mind. It might not specifically damage anything, but it might send you on a trajectory of a direction you don't want to be, based on your future hopes and your future dreams. So what is the wise thing to do? Based on your past experiences, 
based on your current situation and based on your future hopes and dreams. I believe if you actually ask yourself the question honestly, with those three lenses in mind, very rarely are you going to make a decision which you will somehow later on in life come to regret. Why? Because you stop to give yourself perspective to live not as unwise, but as wise. And the reason we need to get this right is that there's no one in the world thinking this for us. That there are 50 shades of grey in our world and we have the freedom to live all of them. But the Apostle Paul writes, you can do anything, but not everything is helpful. You can do whatever you like, but not everything is good for you. The freedom that we have in Christ is that we have the freedom to do whatever we like and God will forgive us, right? Doesn't mean everything's good for you. Doesn't mean everything's right. Doesn't mean everything is wise. To finish our time, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, talking of the gift he has in Jesus. He says, Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained everything, as in everything God has in store for me, everything that God would hope for me, the salvation that I've been given, not that I've already obtained everything that I ought to be, or have arrived at my goal of being the best possible person I can be, he's talking about. He says, but I still press on to take hold of that for which Christ first took hold of me. I press on. Through my wise choices, through the decisions that I make, I I press on to take hold of that. The perfect humanity that we have been given, the perfect life that God has in store for us. We press on with wisdom towards that for which Christ died. And friends, that's what we work towards. That's what God wants for us. And that's what I want for you as your pastor. I want you to seize that for which Christ died for you. A life of fullness in His name. And so we owe it to ourselves to get this right. But we owe it to those that we love to ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? Not just based on my perspective now, but where have I come from? Where am I? And where am I going? Why? Because no one in this life is going to ask that question for you. But it has the power and I believe the capacity to help you make better decisions in this life and live with fewer regrets. So let's pray together, team. Loving and gracious God, I thank you for the gift of your son Jesus Christ. That he gave his life so that we might experience the best possible life. That is a life at home with you, a life in relationship with you, a life where our our journey is not defined by sin and shame and brokenness, but instead it's a life of freedom found in your name. And Lord, that gift of freedom is richer than anything we could imagine. But it's not just a freedom for the future, as in when our time on this earth comes to an end. It's a freedom that you want us to have now. So help us, Lord, 
to live not as unwise, but as wise. Knowing that we have the freedom to do just about anything, but not everything is good for us. Help us to ask this question of ourselves. Give us the wisdom, the courage to look back. What do we know? What's our past been like? How does it shape us? Where are we now? And where do we hope to be? Lord, help us, give us the wisdom to ask the question of ourselves so we can know a right way forward. One that isn't just determined with whether it's right or wrong, illegal, illegal, moral, immoral, just, unjust. Because the world is not that simple most of the time. But instead, give us the perspective we need to make a choice with wisdom. A wisdom that only you can give a wisdom that we won't find anywhere else, but except through your gift upon our life. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.